Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship you. We ask you to guide and lead us in your word and help us just to be focused upon you and all that we do and all that we think. In your son's precious name, amen. Ezekiel chapter 36, we're continuing uh, in this chapter. Last uh, week we talked about him uh, bringing judgment upon those that have given hard time to Israel and bringing Israel back. So we're going to be in verse 21. But I had pity for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whither they went. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do do not this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my own holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen where, where you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, and which you have profaned in the midst of them, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take from you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from your filthiness and from your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart also I will give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them and you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. I will also save you from your uncleanness and I will call for the corn and increase it and lay no famine upon you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and increase the field and you shall receive no more reproach of the famine of the heathen. So we're going to look at this uh, little section here where God says he's going to do some things for Israel. It starts out with verse 21, but I had pity for my holy name which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen where they went. You know, this is kind of interesting. Much of what God does for us is because it's his name that's at stake. You know, whether it's for Israel or for Christians, God does a lot of what he does just because he said he's going to do it. He told Israel he'd give them the land, and he did. He told Abraham that Israel would be, you know, anybody that blessed Israel would be blessed, that they would be like the uh, stars of the sky, the sand of the sea. Uh, And he did it, he gave them that just because he said he was going to do it. And you know, this is something that we need to fully understand is not that we're to go out and try to profane his name like Israel has done, but he's going to bless his holy name. He's going to sanctify his holy name in spite of whatever we do. Because it is grace. It is mercy that he's going to look at. And here he says, I'm going to bring you back. He goes, you know, verse 22 says, Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I will, do this, I will do not this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you profaned among the heathen, whither you went. He says, I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, then I shall sanctify you before their eyes. God calls us, he does the work, and then he sanctifies us. And we've talked about this at times. In Israel today, God has brought them back as a nation. A lot of Jews and Israelites are going back to the land. They want to go back to the land. But when they get there, 
they're not worshiping God, they're not lifting him up. Matter of fact, we've talked about how many of them are at best agnostic, and many of them claim to be atheist. They don't even believe in God, and they're calling themselves Jews and, and God's people. Which they, they should read their Bible, they should, you know. But you know, it's really funny, if you've ever listened to some of the interviews, they'll be telling you how they don't believe in God, but they, then they'll tell you in the next sentence that God gave them the land. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a bizarre dichotomy when you listen to them at times. Uh, because they just, they... Yeah, God bringing them back. God is bringing them back. God's put the desire in their heart. They don't recognize that it's God bringing them back. They don't recognize that they're, you know, not all of them, obviously. There are Orthodox Jews there that are there, and it's God's land, and, you know, and it, God's given it to them, and they're still righteous, and they're wanting, they're wanting a Jewish state uh, to be, and they want it to be Jewish. Uh, with no, you know, freedom to other people, but they want it to be considered a Jewish nation. And that's pretty much what they consider it. It's a place where Jews can go, where there's not supposed to be a lot of anti-Semitism because it's the Jewish home. And as I said before, more and more Jews are wanting to go back to Israel for the biggest reason of all the anti-Semitism that's going around, you know, around the world. Everybody's against them for no real reasons, and so a lot of them want to go home, just be, go to Israel, just because it's su supposed to be a safe environment where they can be Jewish and not, not be attacked by the people. And this may be true even for us as Christians as time goes on. As we try to stand for God, we don't have a home to go to, like the Jews, but it's going to be harder and harder to become a, be a Christian and stand up for God and his word. And we've seen this escalate in recent years that Christians are being attacked because we're taking a stand that's not popular with the world because it's God's standard. And this is what God says, I'm going to draw you together and then I am going to sanctify you. And even for us as Christians, it's God who sanctifies us. We don't, we really, if it's true sanctification, do not sanctify ourselves. We can discipline our flesh a little bit. We can try to put it under control. But if you've ever tried to discipline your flesh and put it under control, eventually it gets out from under your control and explodes and lets everybody know that it's still there, including you. And if you've ever gotten, seen that happen, it's kind of embarrassing. It's a shameful thing to you because you usually are thinking, oh, I got that one under control. I don't have to worry about that anymore. I haven't been angry at anybody for six months. Or uh, I've been very loving for six months. You know, I've been whatever it might be that you're trying to discipline out of your out of your flesh and then all of a sudden it'll just explode with a great passion. And the good news is when God sanctifies it and he says, I'm cutting this out. I'm cutting it out of your life completely. I'm crucifying it. And eventually it, it disappears. And here we see him, he says, I will sanctify my great name which was profaned among the heathen which you have profaned in the midst of them that they shall know that I am the Lord your God. God is doing everything so that his name gets lifted up. And you know, this is something we have to be very careful of. So many times, as Christians, we want to make things, well, look at me, look at what I've got. You know, I've got my act together, I've got this, I've got that. And we may not be that blunt with everybody, but most of the time we're trying to say, just, hey, look at me, I've, I'm, I'm there, I've arrived at some area of my life. And God says, I'm going to do it, and people are going to know that it's me doing it. Israel became a nation after almost 2,000 years of not being a nation. That was noteworthy. 
No country has ever done that, been, not, been, been a no country and then become a country again, and had its, had its relationship and its, its life there. Jews have managed to maintain their Jewish culture, even though they've been scattered around the world, and not even following Judaism per se, but they have a culture that is theirs. And if you've known Jews, you know that they have a culture that's really theirs. They understand the Old Testament in ways that we, we as uh, Gentiles probably never will understand it. Uh, do they fully understand it? No, because they also don't understand it from God's graciousness usually. And we're going to get into this next section in the last part of Ezekiel, which is a lot of grace and a lot of end times prophecies. And they see, and even this one has a great grace verse in it that we use a lot. But, you know, they don't see the grace side of it. And most Christians don't always see the God's gracious, loving attitude in the Old Testament. All they see is a harsh, angry God. But yet, as you're finding out as we study it, God is so loving in the Old Testament. He's so gracious in the Old Testament. Many Christians have that mindset, unfortunately, not just the world. You know, well, I don't want to get in the Old Testament because that's a different God somehow. That was an angry, mean God. I want the, I want the nice, nice, loving God of the New Testament. Well, I don't know. Ananias and Sapphira dying for their sins was pretty, pretty unloving if you want to look at it from that point of view. And different things that happened to Paul and all the, the apostles that were following him. Doesn't, you know, being thrown into jail and, and, and beheaded and crucified. And, but it is kind of interesting when we look at the Bible and we see God's love and his mercy in the Old Testament. Yes, we see more, you know, more of his righteousness and holiness in the Old Testament than his love and mercy. Yes, we see more of his love and his kindness than his holiness and his righteousness in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Both of them, though, have all of it because God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 24. For I will take you from among the heathen and will gather you out of all the countries and will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your unfilthiness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. All right, so looking at these two verses that were 24 and 25. God says, I will take you from, all, uh, from among the heathens and gather you from all countries. God has started this part with them. In 1948, he started gathering them back from all around the world, gave them a country, and he is starting to clean them. You know, more and more of them are starting to respond to God. He's sprinkling water. And if you remember when we studied back at the very beginning of the tabernacle, what did they sprinkle on it? They sprinkled the blood and the water with the ashes of the red heifer in it. And that's what God's speaking of. He's going to sprinkle water on, you know, the, the water of the forgiveness with the red heifer. And he says, I'm going to sprinkle this on you and you shall be clean. Now we know that Israel is not at that point yet, for the most part. There are people responding to him. There are people that aren't responding to him. But he says, I'm going to bring you to me and I'm going to make you my people. Now we know from Revelation that they're not going to really become his people until halfway through the tribulation period when all of a sudden Antichrist stands up in the temple and declares that he is God. And all of a sudden, their eyes open up and they go, we've been tricked. Uh, we've been following the wrong person. This is not Messiah. And all of a sudden, they will turn to God because everything's turning against them at that point in their own country. You know, they will be in their own country. They think that everything's going good. They've got the, uh, they've got the temple. It's starting to offer sacrifices. And then all of a sudden, everything turns against them. 
and they all of a sudden will be realized uh, we've been tricked, we don't know what's going on, God will open their eyes, and they will hide for the next three and a half years. And we're going to see parts of this, but he says, I will, get, I will bring you there. God wants people's eyes opened. But this is, where, this is what, even for us as Christians, we accept Jesus Christ in our life, and then he sprinkles the water on us to, to sanctify us, and he is the one that cleans us up. You know, we don't do it all ourselves. Matter of fact, we can't do any of it. All we do is turn ourselves over to God and watch what he does in our life. Now, for by grace are we saved through faith, and that means even our salvation is, and our sanctification is by his grace. He does the work. All I do is let him come in and crucify my flesh and live out of me. And, you know, he's the one that cleans our filthiness. He's the one that clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. And the sooner we realize this, the better off. I heard one of the pastor sometime today, I don't remember when I was listening, but he said, you know, how many Christians, if you ask them, are you going to go to heaven? He goes, most of the time, and I know it's true because I've asked Christians the same thing, you get an answer of, I hope so, or I think so. That tells you a lot about their relationship with God is that they don't know. If Jesus Christ is in us, then we know we're going to go to heaven. You know, we think about this. We need to know that we're in a relationship with God and that we're going to heaven. Why? Because it's by grace. Every bit of salvation is by grace. I can't do, I can't say I get saved by Jesus' blood and then I have to keep myself by doing lots of good works. Because then it's not eternal life. It's not really salvation. If I think I have any part in it, I'm deceiving myself. My part is simple. Let him kill me. <laughs> Pretty simple. God, I am on the altar. Please kill my flesh and put your spirit within me. That is all that we can do, and that's all he asks us to do. Now, that will mean that as we walk in our daily life, and he's crucifying the flesh, and he's living out of us, that we will do lots of things that are going to show that he is our, who we have the relationship with. But I am not doing those things trying to go, God, here's my brownie points. I did all these things. Here's my brownie points. You know, no, we're doing it because he's crucifying our flesh and he's coming out. And it's him living through us. And this is what's important. He is the one that does the work. If I'm deceiving myself thinking I'm doing any part of it, I don't understand. If I'm thinking I've got to do so many things to keep myself in, in place with God, I'm in, a, I'm in the wrong place. I'm at the wrong attitude. Because somehow, and this happens, it happens to almost every Christian, it happens all over the churches, people get saved by grace and then they start following rules. And then what happens when you start following the rules? Well, not only do you break them, but you start feeling distance from God because it's no longer a relationship that you're in. It's, I've got to do all these things, and then, then I can have my relationship with him. You know, and got to read my Bible, got to pray, got to, got to do this, got to do that, got to do this. And then, where's God? <laughs> You'll find a time when you're no longer finding the, you know, laughing at what they laugh at or thinking, and then they'll disappear. It takes time to grow. And to be honest, it's probably harder to be a witness to your friends or the ones that you want to hang around with, even than family. Because family, you figure they've got to like me no matter what, so you're, you're a little more able to be 
I guess abrasive would be the word, you know, no, you know, I'm going to be Christian amongst my family. Your friends, you have this idea that if I offend them, they might not hang around, and then who am I going to hang around with? And you may not even think it consciously. It's just, if you offend your friends, uh, who are you hanging out with? It's more of a subconscious thing. Over the past five years, I've lost a lot of friends. You probably have more impact on them than you're even thinking you are, but you know, you're right. You're going to have those times when... I guess I'm looking... Uh, I usually would ask, like, God's reason. Is it, is it because... I don't know what God knows, so I can't even begin to tell you on that. There's a statement that I put up on the PowerPoint several, probably a year or two ago. God's will is what I would choose if I knew everything. I don't know everything, so I don't know why he brings something bad in my life when it happens. All I can know is because he knows everything, then it is, if I knew what he knew, I would choose exactly what was going on in my life. So when we go, why does God judge this one person but not this other person for the same activity? I have no idea how to answer that. He knows all things. He knows how it would affect their family or Christians around them or non-Christians around them. He knows everything and he knows that it is the best thing that can happen in that situation. Why? I have no idea. And I can't even begin to tell you why seems to get away with something and another person does not seem to get away with it. Maybe he knows that that person knows that they're not getting away with it and will be convicted while this other person would never have been convicted. So God says, fine, you're never going to be convicted. I'm going to end your life now. I don't know. I'm only guessing on that, you know, because he knows the future. He knows exactly what somebody will or will not do in any given situation. He knows whether they're going to learn from the activity or at least be convicted of their sins and have a chance or totally reject it and think they're getting away with it and kind of laugh in his face, uh, look what I'm getting away with. Uh, he, knows, he knows everything, and therefore... He's the only one that can tell you why he did what he did. Sometimes in our own life, we can look back and say, oh, now I understand why this happened, or I think I'm beginning to understand why I went through some of this stuff. Well, I don't claim to understand half of what goes on in my life. All I do is trust in God. And that's all we, can, all we really can do is that, God, you know what's going on, and you know, you promise that it's all going to be for good, and so I'm just going to accept that that's what's going on. And sometimes that's the only prayer you can have. God, all hell's breaking loose in my life, and I don't understand it, but you've promised it, you've promised it will be for good, so that's what I'm holding on to. An old poster I, I saw a long time ago it was a, a rope with a little knot on it and a cat's hanging on at the bottom of the rope and said, when all, when all else fails, hang on. And that's kind of what I picture sometimes when I think about all things work together for good. There are times when I'm like at the end of the rope, God saying, okay, God, all I can say is that you've promised it's going to be for good. I don't see how. The, the, the whole point of God has made a promise. He's going to keep it. And that's what we've ultimately got to understand. When we get into his word, we look at it and say, God, you have made a promise. I'm going to believe your promise. Doesn't look like it's going to come true. I don't understand how it can come true, but I'm going to believe your promise. More often than not, Israel got in trouble because they failed to believe what God promised. They get to the edge of the promised land, and the spies bring back an evil report saying, yeah, it's a really good land, but there's giants in the land, and the cities are so big we can't conquer it. 
Joshua, Joshua and Caleb go, God says it's our land. We, he, we are more than able to take care of it because God's going to do it. And the people want to stone Joshua and Caleb and, and walk away from God. How many times do we do that kind of stuff? We just fail to believe what God says. God says that we are crucified with him. And yet we will fight tooth and nail to live in our flesh or try to discipline our flesh rather than letting God do it. God says that we have eternal life and we fight tooth and nail to try to earn eternal life. Yeah, because somehow we just don't trust that God is going to do it. You know, this is something that's very interesting. I heard a pastor saying, and I, and I thought it was so true, we claim that we believe that we're going to have eternal life, but we don't believe that God is able to keep us in this life. And it's kind of a strange thought. God, I can believe you for my future, I think, but I can't believe you for my healer now, so that, what does that really tell you? You're probably not trusting him for your future. If you don't believe he can take care of you here and now, how can you believe that he's going to take care of your future? I'm dead, it won't matter? I, I guess. I don't know what they're thinking on that. Always when we try to grab hold of the steering wheel and say, God, let me drive for a while. Let me try to drive this life a little while and see how, you know, well, God's probably looking at us like, we well, messed it up before you came to me. Why, what makes you think you can take care of it now? And it's an old, old bumper sticker from the 70s, you know, let God be your co-pilot, and, and it's totally wrong. And that co should be ridden out and, and be the pilot and get yourself in the back seat. Don't even, don't even get in a place where you think you're going to be driving at all. This is the mentality, though, that most Christians have. God, I'm in the driver's seat. You kind of sit over here, and you, you can tell me what to do and where to go, and I'll go there if I want to because I'm, I'm in the steering wheel. Uh, or as a throne one. God, I'm sitting on the throne. You can be my advisor. You can sit on the right-hand side, God. And God says, no, I want to sit. I'm Lord. I'm Master. I'm to be sitting on the throne. And you are to be obedient. You're not even on the advisor seat. You're, you're down at the bottom doing what you're told. But unfortunately for all of us, we all do this. We try to take the steering wheel. We try to take the throne. Matter of fact, we might even try to keep God out of the throne room of our heart completely. God, go over there in that closet, and if I need you, I'll open up the closet. You go in the spare bedroom, and if I need you, I'll, I'll let you come on out and help me. And oftentimes, that's how we treat God. God, I'm in trouble. Can you come over here and help me? You know, I'm, and I think God sometimes will say no. Yeah. You, you put yourself in that mess. You're not quite ready yet for me to take over, so you just keep crashing into the tree for a little while longer, and when you're really tired of it, I'll come and help you. Because how many times do we call God when we can't see a way out, but we're not ready to relinquish control of our life in whatever area it is that we're in? And all of us have some area where we want to be in control of. We're crashing into the wall several hundred times, and we're going, God, help me. I'm crashing into a wall. And God says, well, are you ready to let me take? No, God, I like, I like what I'm doing. Well, then you just crashed in the wall a few more times then. Yeah. And we do this over and over again. Yes, God, I know I need help, but I can't see my way out of this problem. And God said, well, when you're tired of trying to see your way out of the problem, I'll get you out of the problem. He sees just a little bit more than we do. Uh, he, he can pick us up and carry us over the wall if we, you know, if we just let him. But, you know, we want to be careful about this. He says, I will sanctify, I will clean them of all their infilthiness and from their idols. And note that this is, God says, then I, uh, then will I, you know, God is doing the work. He's the one cleansing. He's the one, cl 
taking away from their idols. And then in verse 26, it says, a new heart I will also give you, and a new spirit I will put in you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Sounds just a little bit like the New Testament picture. We are a brand new creation in Christ. Why? Because God takes this heart of stone out of us. He puts a new heart in us that wants to serve him. He takes out our bad spirit, puts a new spirit in, and then on top of that, he comes and dwells inside us. What a blessing it is to be his follower. He does all the work. He's the one that makes the changes. And he says that he will live within us. Now, the greatest blessing we have is that God lives in us and guides and leads us as long as we will let him do so. And the problem is, especially as when we, immature Christians, is that we fight God tooth and nail. You know, kind of amazing. If you think back when you first got saved, how everything was fresh, everything was new, and, and God says, here, here you go, here's your answers. And then you kind of get used to it. We as humans have this great capacity that as we get used to the blessings, that we start beginning to have this attitude of, okay, God, that was good, but what have you done for me lately? That's the way humans think all the time. Complacency. Complacency. Uh, uh, I think it's more familiarity. We get used to something. Uh, when we get a blessing, we start thinking, well, this is the way it's supposed to be. And I've shared this many times. One of my most interesting things now that I've got a really good job is that I don't want to get complacent with it and realize that this is anything but the blessing of God. Sometimes it's harder to have this extra blessings that he brings us. The security that comes with it because you can start making security your idol. God, I've got this, I've got, I've got this, I've got my... I've got my good job, I've got my 401k, I've got my retirement, whatever it might be that you're putting your, your hope in can be an idol for you pretty easily and just becoming complacent with it. And we need to be very careful about this, that we're not building up idols out of God's blessings and saying, okay, I've got it, my life's all together. And we start by praising God, God, thank you for all of this, and then after a while, we forget that God's had any part of it. And it might even be, look what I've done. I built this 401k that I'm depending on. I built this, you know, I spent my 40 years in the company to have my retirement or my 60, 40 years in the, in the workforce to have my social security or whatever it might be. And we start saying, God, you know, what are, what are you doing for me, God? I, look at all the stuff I've done. And we want to be very careful about this. Because idols come in so many shapes and sizes. You know, and sometimes idols can be just the, our hobbies and activities that we do. I've seen people get so active in their hobbies that they forget about God. And I've shared with you, a lot of times you see people get all their little toys from all the years of working, and then the toys take them away from God. Kind of like what happened to Solomon. Solomon got rich, had lots of stuff, got lots of wives, and the next thing you know, he's not following God. And it didn't happen just overnight. Our fall from God does not happen overnight. It's a slow downward progression that follows us. 
And God says, I will put, you know, I will do this thing. I will put a new heart in you. I will put a new spirit and I will dwell in you. And then he says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and my judgments and to do them. God that does the work. If I think I'm doing anything in the work, there's a problem. And I need to be very careful about that because my flesh will lead me astray always. Adam and Eve in a perfect environment, one rule in their life, don't eat of that one tree in all the garden. And where does it say they were standing? Next to the tree. And you can almost picture exactly what was going through their heads. Well, it looks like all the other trees. It looks like it would be good. I don't understand why we can't eat of this one tree. It looks delicious. And then they walk away. And the next day they come back and go, it still looks like it just like all the other trees. It still looks delicious. I don't know why we can't eat of this tree. And then one day they meet Satan there, who then calls God's truth into question. How close do we want to get to sin before we cross the line? If you're asking that question, you're asking the wrong question. The question is, how far from this sin can I stay away from it? And you'll hear it all the time. How close can I, do, you know, what can I do and not cross this line? An interesting thought about the trees. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, there's an outside chance that all the trees could be the same tree or the same type of tree. They still hung about it because he said, stay away from that tree. That is my personal belief that there was nothing different about that tree other than God said that's the one you're not supposed to touch because by eating it you've, you've, crossed, you've crossed disobedience into God. Now there are many that believe it was a literally special tree that caused sin to come into their mind, into their life. I just think it was that they, they sinned by not doing it and that caused the knowledge of sin and evil because all of a sudden you crossed the line. It's, there's no... There's no good or bad about it. But, uh, I tend to believe it was just a tree that God said. And that would also make it a bigger challenge. It looks just like the other, you know, apricot, orange, banana trees in the, in the, in the, in the grove. So why not from this tree? Because how many times do we do that same thing? God, I don't understand why you won't let me do it. It looks just like all the other things you can allow me to do. Why not this one? That is a, an attack from Satan all the time. Now, I'm not going to make a hard stand on that one. No, it's just one of those things. I've always thought it was just a tree that God said, don't eat of this one, and, and the violating of it was the, what brought the sin and evil. He knew they'd sin. It was just an opportunity for them, one rule, and they couldn't keep one rule, which, same thing for us. Often, usually, God gives us one rule at a time to deal with, and we usually can't keep the one rule that he's working with us on. That's human nature. You must understand well, it wasn't their human nature. They were sinless. They, they had the capacity to be sinless. He knew that they wouldn't because he knew that they would sin because he knew all things. And he knew that they would sin even before he created them. But Adam was, and Eve were the only people that had the capacity, other than Jesus, to live a sinless life because they had no sin nature to begin with. And because of their fall, they brought sin into, into life and every single human being other than Jesus has had a sin nature and have born with the capacity to not be able to be perfect. And they still chose sin. They had the capacity. They had the capacity to be sinless and chose to sin. That's the difference between us and them. Well, we have no capacity to not sin. That's what I'm saying. We, have no capacity. we can choose God and we can start being <clears throat> sanctified, but that is Him putting a new heart and new spirit within us and changing. And it's only Him that allows us to do that. So it's a very interesting process here. 
God is the one that does it all. And we've got to understand that it's God. I have full trust in God's grace and mercy and his desire in us to make us want to do what's right by teaching grace. Because it's only his grace that's going to change us anyway. And I know that it's only his grace because I can tell you I'm, a, I'm just like every other human. You start piling a bunch of rules and laws on me and I want to break them. And that's the problem out there. When people try to live by rules, in one side of them they go, I want to keep these rules because I want to be accepted by it. But on the other side, their flesh is saying, why do I have to do this? What's the, what's the point of following these rules? Which is why so many people want to be able to put the rules on saying that it's somehow to get you into heaven. Because now, if you're following them, you have a reason. If I, if I do these 28 million things, I'll get to go to heaven. The only problem is, it's a wrong statement. And nobody would have 28 million, you know, it would be this 10 or 20. But you know, isn't that what we find if you go to a bookstore and look for the self-help area? You can find self-help for everything. You know, how to, you know, including how to, how to read your Bible better and how to live the Christian life and how to do this and how to do that and all these righteous things. Here's your eight steps to, to live a perfect life. You know, here's your eight, sex, uh, eight, eight steps to a better marriage. Here's your eight steps to being a, better, being a better parent. In our human nature, we like this idea of just tell me what to do and I will do them. And as long as I can do them, I will be able to get where I want to be. There was a preacher on the radio the other day saying that people come to you and they want, they want one, two, three steps on how to get to heaven. Uh-huh. And I heard somebody just recently tell me, I go, they want me to teach you these are the things you have to do to live a better life. I'm going, that's what I do every week. You just don't want to do what I tell you. Let God crucify you. you know, God wants to crucify us. He doesn't want us to follow ten easy steps to to a perfect, perfect life, or 10 easy steps to this, or 10, he says, it's me. There's one step, die. <laughs> die to yourself, and is your, that's your only step toward living any perfection that you want to live, because it has to be God living out of you. The only problem is we don't want to die. The flesh does not want to die. Yeah. And that's, that's the problem that we have here. And until we let God put that new heart and new spirit in us and keep it there and quit trying to raise the flesh up out of its grave, we will not live in victory. That victory must come through God living through us. And that's what he's talking about here. I'm doing the work. It's God saying, I'm doing it, not you. He says, I will take and put a new heart in there. I will put the new spirit in me. I will live in you. I will dwell with you and, you know, and he says, I will cause you to walk in my judgments. You know, it's all God. And the more we surrender to him, the better off we are. And each one of us know that as we've walked with God longer and longer and we start maturing and we start seeing life is so much easier when we surrender to God. It's taken me a long time to learn it. But you know, I'm getting to the place where I'm going, God, I just want to surrender to you more and more. I want you to be the one that I can depend on at all times and I'm getting better at it. I'm still not perfect at it. Probably never will be perfect at it. I don't fight with him as long as I used to. But you know, and I'm hoping that each one of you have that same attitude. You're seeing God work in your life and you're surrendering easier. Now maybe many of you will not take six years to learn a lesson like I did, 
hopefully you're not learning, taking longer than six years to learn a lesson. Uh, but we want to just be able to say, God, take over. I just want you to be living through me. And then watch what he does. Because it's a, quite a ride. Better than any ride at any amusement park you can ever go to, to is to let God lead you and see the thrill of where he's going to take you. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's exhilarating. But you know, God's always in control and it makes it a wonderful direction to go into. Verse 28, 28. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. I will also save you from all your uncleanness and I will call you for corn and will increase it and lay no famine on you. So God's saying, you know, I'm going to give you the land. And this is what he's done to Israel. He's given them their land. And this is what he does for us as Christians as well. He gives us good places to dwell in. He puts us in good pastures. He says, I will save you from your uncleanness. I will call for corn and will increase it and lay no famine upon you. One of the things that's wonderful about God that I have noticed, he meets all our needs. All of them. If you let him. Huh? He will still meet your needs whether you let him or not because it's him that does it. Now, will you get your blessings? Or will you get your abundance? Will you get the extra corn necessarily? Not, not necessarily. But you know, I have never had a time when God has not met my need. I haven't had all the wealth in the bank that I would love to all the time or you know, all the great you know, uh, extravagance. Not that I've ever really wanted it. You know, I've been pretty happy just to have my needs met. We've always had a, house, a roof over our head. We've always been able to get back and forth. We've had food on the table. Even when I wasn't making a whole lot of money when I was young with, with four kids and a wife, God still kept a roof over our head. The utilities were on. He met the needs. Now, does he promise to meet the needs of all people? No. Israel are his people, and he says, I'm going to give you your needs. Will he, and will he give Christians their, their needs? I fully trust that he gives Christians their needs. Now, sometimes we mix, especially up in America, we mix our needs and wants together. You know, uh, well, God, I, I have a house, but I, don't, I have this old rickety phone, and I have a TV that's uh, 100 years old, and you know, I, don't, I don't have the best furniture. And God says, well, you have a house, you have food, you have, and you have a little bit of furniture. What more do you want? Well, God, I want a 55-inch TV and, uh, and three cars out in the garage. And God says, those aren't needs. What are you going to use them for to serve me with? God's looking at how are we going to serve him. Now, if you need something, you need a big 56-inch TV to, to serve God and, and show Christian movies to your friends and family all the time, then maybe, maybe you'd get one if you were truly using it for his kingdom. Most of us want to just be entertained with it. Most of us want all this stuff so that we can consume it upon ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with being, having prosperity as long as you keep focused on God. And there's nothing particularly spiritual about being in poverty. For a long time, Christians have believed, you know, we've swung from one extreme to the other. We, you know, we have the prosperity gospel that says if you're not rich and, and wealthy and wise, then, then something's wrong with you. 
You've got the other extreme that says if you're not in extreme poverty, then you're, then you're using God's blessings on yourself. Get somewhere in the center. There's nothing spiritual about either extreme. There are thousands of rich people that are totally ungodly. There are thousands, if not millions, of people that are totally broken in poverty that don't know God and are, and are and not close to God, even though they're broken in their poverty. There's nothing spiritual about either side. In the center is where we want to be. And if we can be prosperous and use it for God, then God would give you all the money that you, then you could possibly ever need if you knew, knew that you were going to stay focused on him and, and use it to build the kingdom. And if, and if you're going to be broke, there is a point where you can be too broke and not serve God. Solomon said, or no, it's not Solomon, it was a theologian who said, give me neither wealth nor poverty so that I will not curse God. Because there's a point where you can be so broke that you're going to be easily tempted to steal or whatever to, to survive. And if you have too much, it's too, so very easy to start depending on yourself and not God. So God says, I want you where I want you. you. I want you so that you're always focused on me. And he meets our needs. And in Israel, it's amazing what's going on in Israel. He's increased their corn and increased their trees. They are the breadbasket of, of Europe. And that little tiny country feeds a huge part of the world. God is keeping his word. It's amazing as we read this and look and see how God is keeping his word. Now his people haven't come to him yet, but he's doing his part. And he's going to bring a new heart into them. It may take a little while until they're ready to, for, for that heart to be brought into them, but he's going to bring their heart into them. In the middle of the tribulation period, he's going to say, here's your eyes open, here's your new heart that wants to serve me, let's get rid of your idols and start serving. Amazing what God says to do sometimes to draw people to him. And you know, this is something that we want to keep in mind. What does God need to do in my life to make me come to him? Or into a loved one's life that, to get him to come to him? Sometimes I've watched, especially parents, they pray for their kids to come to God, and then they give their kids all the help out of all the trouble that God brings their kid into, trying to bring them to him, so that they become God in their kid's life. Uh, Mom, Dad, I'm going to lose my house. Oh, you poor baby, let me pay your, let me pay your mortgage for you for, for a couple years. You know, why? Because they don't want to see their baby out in the street. Well, worse yet, their grandbabies, that's usually the big one. And yet, that might be just what they need for them to turn to God and say, God, I need you as my help. We need to be very careful. When we help somebody, are we truly helping them? Or are we keeping them from responding to God? And that's a hard thing to decide when you're trying to help somebody. Because you can be helping them right into hell if you're keeping too much of their pain out of their life. And this is something that we want to be very careful of. That doesn't mean we don't help people. <laughs> you know, we want to help people. We need to help people. But are we helping them actually come to God? Or are we helping them stay further away from God? So many testimonies will talk with people will well, I found myself in Skid Row in the bottom of the barrel from my high-priced executive job, and I lost my job, I lost my family, and then I found God when I thought all was lost. And then God restored so much of their life. If somebody had kept them from having all that happen, would they have found God? Probably not. It's hard to come back to God or find God when you're in the middle area. 
very hard sometimes, or even at the top. Sometimes God has to do extreme things in our life to make us finally see that we need him. Because if you're on top of the world, it's hard to see that you need God. You may still feel empty and probably do feel empty, but you think, I am in control. I have got everything all together. I can, I can buy anything I want. I can sell anything I want. I can, I, if I want something, I'll just go down and buy it. I don't need God. I've got it all under control. Not happy, not joyful, but I've got, I can do what I want. And sometimes God has to pull the, the rug right out from under you. And we talked about this. In Job's case, he started getting to a place where he was starting to do the rituals. Every, every week he'd offer the sacrifices for himself and for his family just in case they sinned. And you look at that. Did he hate evil? Absolutely. God said he hated evil. But I think it became routine. This is just what I do. I'm following a routine. And you know what? God hates routines. He says, don't pray with vain repetition like the heathen do. And yet if you look at your prayers, how many times do your prayers end up being, if you really start listening to yourself praying, are you saying the same thing to God each time you pray? And God's, you know, you may not have it written down in a script, I'm going to say this, this, and this, but if you start listening to your prayers, I'm going, and I've done this myself, and especially in recent days. God, my, my prayers are getting to be repetitious. Help me. Help me focus on you more and be able to start having a conversation with you. you know, how easy it is. I get up every morning, read my Bible, say my prayers, go to work. And if it just becomes repetition, you've got a problem. It's got to become real. It's got to be something where I'm in a relationship with God and saying, God, I, I want you. And I'm not saying you're doing it for the wrong reasons. It's just, this is what I do. And it's become, in, in a very strange set of ways, it's become a little checkbox. These are the things I do every day. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with them, but if all they are becoming is ritual, We've got a problem. We need to be able to look at our lives and our activities and say, God, is it real? Is it alive? Or is it just ritual? And we need to do that with everything that we do. God, am I just falling into a ritual with you and just a pattern, or do I have a real relationship with you? Look out when he gets in a relationship because he may get you doing some really crazy things sometimes. Because you may all of a sudden go, God, I don't understand what you're doing. God, I really didn't want to do this. What are we here for? And you watch what he does. Watch how he works on it. Uh, verse 31. Then you shall remember your own evil ways and your doings which were not good and shall clothe yourself in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sakes do I do this, says the Lord. Be it known to you and be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. He's saying, I will multiply your blessings. And then he gets into this. Then remember your, own, your evil ways and your doings that were not good. So loathe yourself in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. We need to get to this point where we understand that we're sinners. That we are sinners. You know, in today's world, how often are we told that self-esteem is probably the most important thing. You've got to have a good self-esteem. You've got to think good and you've got to think good thoughts about yourself. You know, God's statements all the time are that we are sinners, that we deserve nothing, and that we're evil. 
Now, do we want to dwell on those things on ourselves? No, but we need to realize that in our flesh, there is no good thing. There is nothing good in our flesh. Because as soon as we start thinking that I can do something, we're in trouble. Because our flesh stinks. <laughs> That's the easiest way to put it. It stinks and wants to do sin. And I've said before, our first thoughts are always going to be fleshly thoughts. The whole idea that we hope is that we've crucified, that God's done enough crucifixion and that he's living enough in us that his thought is so close to it that we start thinking, I'm thinking God's thoughts. And if he's crucified it, it will be his thought. But in our flesh, not good, never good. And we need to come through this to understand that it's God, God that does the work. And in my flesh, I cannot do anything that's going to please him. I'm not even going to do what's right. I'm, and ideally, I should not be pleased at all in my own flesh. Hopefully, we get to the place where when we act out in the flesh, we're going, oh, man, that stinks. I really did something really stupid and dumb. God, why did, you let, why did I let that come out? You know, God, crucify that. Or like Amy was saying earlier, you know, when we're around certain people and certain friends, we start acting in certain ways. And oftentimes it's the fleshly way, unless we're hanging around with other Christians, and then we might end up, but even that could be the opposite way. We could be pretending to be a Christian instead of, you know, and trying to make people think that we're doing good, which is just as bad, because that gets us into self-righteousness. Isn't that worse? Probably because we're trying to deceive ourselves and others. So it probably is worse. Anything that is not God coming out of us and being who we are is going to be a problem. If you're a fleshly person, let people know that you're a fleshly person. At least they'll know what to pray for. Uh, if you're a spiritual person, then let God live out of you and, and watch what God does as he's lifted up. But you know, we need to understand who we are in the flesh, which is nothing. Our flesh is nothing. Nothing to be proud of anyway. It will lead us into sin every single time. It will give us the wrong thoughts every single time. It will lead us into destruction every single time and lead us towards sin. God's ways will lead us to life, letting him lead us. We're going to stop there. <laughs> Never make it to the end, and there's still a few things I want to cover. So let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to see you in all that we do. Help, let us stay on the altar and let you crucify our flesh and let you live through us. Lord, we ask that that new spirit and new heart is strong within us and that you will dwell within us to give us guidance in all that we do in your son's precious name. Amen.